Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community. Choristers, Joelle, Mary Jo, thank you. Thank you for blessing us this morning with that. I appreciate you singing for us and sharing. Let me reintroduce myself for those that uh, came in late. I'm Bruce Struxma. I'm the senior pastor here at Watertown Evangelical Free Church. I'm excited you are here. As David, Pastor David King said last week, we're digging into a, a tricky passage this morning uh, with Melchizedek. And, and I don't know, you know, maybe it's the fact that they're talking more snow. I don't know, maybe it's the fact that we've had enough snow. Maybe it's the fact that my hockey rink is done for the year and I've completely given up on it because I skated on it twice and fell through the ice in my backyard. I don't know, but I just feel like this week there's been a lot of opportunities for me to just sit back and go, this is fine even when it's not fine. And I, and I thought of, you know, maybe, maybe you're a person who's, who likes memes. Maybe you've seen this one before, but there's a very famous one of the dog with the room on fire and the cup of coffee. And he's sitting there saying, this is fine. This is fine. And when things are definitely not fine, and I think we can all relate at some degree to that image, that image of looking around when things are falling apart, when things are not fine, and wanting to say, well, this is fine. This is fine. I had the opportunity uh, before my oldest twins were born, my wife and I did a Boundary Waters trip. Now, I spent uh, six years working at Rock Ridge, which is the free church camp up on the edge of the Boundary Waters, uh, leading groups all six years into the Boundary Waters. And so here we were, uh, newly married, and my wife had, had three other roommates that she had lived with uh, when, when we were dating and engaged. And uh, we decided that the group of us, some were married and some were not yet, we're gonna do a Boundary Waters trip. So we're six of us going up to the Boundary Waters. And, um, and I was the expert because I had spent six years in high school and college leading middle school kids into the Boundary Waters. Therefore, I was the, the expert. And we had a great trip and uh, we were at Range Lake, if you're familiar with that area in the Boundary Waters. The next day we were gonna get up and paddle out. And we set up on Range Lake, our camp, and a storm blew in. And it was a bad one. Uh, I've been in worse, but not, not many. And we're laying there, my wife and I, in our tent, and the tent is folding down from the wind on top of us. You know, so I don't know if you've ever had to brace your tent from the inside to keep it from folding down on top of you, but that's the experience it was. And there were two single women, my wife's former roommates who were in the next tent over, one of whom was not at all excited about this trip to begin with, um, was not at all excited about the fact that there was not running water and flush toilets. And, and, and she's in her tent, there in their tent, and the wind is blowing our tents flat on our faces. And I hear this voice from a distance, because remember, I'm the expert. Bruce, is this normal? <laughs> and I had, a, I had the opportunity there. I had the opportunity to step out in confidence and go, this is fine. This is normal. This is standard behavior for the Boundary Waters. And being the considerate, kind, caring, strong personality that I am, I said, sure. <laughs> and very much did not step into that moment, did not fill, fill them with confidence. Uh, needless to say, we have not been asked to go back to the Boundary Waters with them 
They were not excited about that experience. And I had this opportunity, I could have stepped in. I could have stepped in and I think we know people, we all know people who, have, who exude that confidence when they walk in and you go, hey, we're gonna be okay. You know, that person is here. Maybe we've worked with that person. Uh, maybe that person is in our family. Maybe that's our parent. And when they show up, we go, we're gonna be okay. And I think sometimes when we're in those moments where things aren't falling apart and we wish, or where things are falling apart and we wish they were fine, I think sometimes we think God is just, that's, that's the moment we want his presence. That's when we want God to show up, to, to reassure us that this is fine, that everything will be okay. Other than that, God, I'm, I'm good on my own. But when things are falling apart, when, when, when the tent is blowing in my face, that's when I want your presence, God. That's when I want you to show up so that I know that this, things are gonna be okay. This is fine. And so the author of Hebrews, we're gonna talk about the presence of God. We're gonna be in Hebrews chapter seven and chapter eight this morning. We've kind of been going chapter by chapter and we're gonna, we're gonna pick up the pace so that we can get through Hebrews in a timely manner. But we're gonna be in Hebrews seven and eight this morning. And, and our author is going to unpack this idea of Melchizedek. And we're gonna talk about the presence of God being limitless as we read our passage this morning. But we do need this basic understanding of Melchizedek and who he is and what was significant about it because our author assumes some knowledge on our behalf. And I don't know about you, but the church that I grew up in uh, was a great church that taught from the Bible, but Melchizedek was not a common topic, especially in elementary, middle school and high school, which is when I was there, right? I didn't hear a lot about Melchizedek in my upbringing. I heard about Noah, I heard about the lion's den. I heard the parables of Jesus. Melchizedek is not a common one. And our author kind of has this assumed knowledge that we should know a little bit about who he is and, and why he's significant. And so I thought it would be important for us this morning to start there. Who is Melchizedek? Before we unpack what, what our author of Hebrews is trying to say about Melchizedek, maybe we should understand, understand the story. And so we go back into Genesis and we'll, we'll read in a, in a moment from Genesis 14, but in, in Genesis 14, we have Abraham, right? Who, father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, the predecessor to the, to the people of Israel. And we have his nephew, Lot. And they've come into the promised land and they've, they've separated. And Lot has moved toward Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's settled on that side of the plain and Abraham has gone the other direction. And, and, and Sodom and Gomorrah get conquered by another king. And Lot, uh, being close to them, gets captured with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham takes his army, his household is big enough to have his own army, and he goes and he rescues Lot, as well as Sodom and Gomorrah. And on his way back is where our story picks up in Genesis 14. After Abram returned from de defeating Keter-Leomar, the king and the kings allied with him. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a 10th of everything. And that 10th of everything is everything he had rescued a tenth of everything. And so this is our story. This is the significant story that our, our author is going to unpack in Hebrews 7. And, and it's really not that big of a story, right? Like we don't get a whole lot of detail. 
We know very little about Melchizedek from this story. We know he's a king of Salem, which by the way is Jerusalem, which is a prominent location, especially moving forward. You know, if you've, if you've read the Bible or, or even just watched the news now, we know Jerusalem is a significant city and he is the king of Salem. We also know that he is a priest of God most high. And that, that's about it. That's about all we have. But beyond that, our author is using this encounter, our author in Hebrews, to show the readers of Hebrews that God's presence is not limited by how they understand it. Oftentimes, I think we limit God's presence because we expect it to be a certain way. And he is gonna use this, this story of Melchizedek and he's gonna unpack it in a way to show that, hey, Jesus now, after his death, after his resurrection in the new church, the story has changed, the dynamic has changed. And, and, and we need to get away from, is, is kind of what he's saying to them, we need to get away from your A-B thinking. You need to move away from this is the way it was, so this is the way it will be, and move into an understanding that God has been at work throughout all of human history, and sometimes he moves in ways that we don't understand, but that does not change his presence. God's presence is, is not limited to our understanding. And so we're gonna look at this story and we're gonna get four lessons from Melchizedek. We're gonna get four lessons from Melchizedek that will help us take God's presence deeper in our lives and unlock our understanding to say, hey, maybe God's presence isn't limited to how I think it should be or how I understand it. And our first lesson this morning is God's presence brings authority. And like I said, some people just have authority. They walk into the room and you know it's fine. You know, um, there are some people that when, when they enter the room and maybe you've been lucky enough to have that person as a boss or a parent or a coach or a teacher at school where things were falling apart and they entered the room and you went, okay, okay, I don't know how this is gonna work out, but we're fine now. They showed up. And we get that idea. I think Melchizedek is one of those people. He walks into the space and people are like, okay, okay, we're fine. Melchizedek is here. People knew who he was. He was a king of significant location but he also carried this name with him. And so we're gonna read this morning, starting in chapter seven, the first 17 verses. And, and as we move faster through the book, I'm not always gonna read all of it, but this morning I am, because we, we need to really, really get this stuff. But this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a 10th of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. And I wanna pause there real quick to be really clear. Our author isn't saying that Melchizedek is still alive. He's saying that in our story in Genesis, we don't get those pieces of information. And so it's like he's still alive, hence resembling. And I wanna be clear with that because, because I don't want it to turn into this thing where, where it, it, some people wanna lift Melchizedek up to a higher role than a normal human. He was a mere mortal, just like you and me. He isn't like Jesus. And that's why the author goes to great pains to say, resembling the son of God. Okay, I'm sorry, moving on. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a 10th of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a 10th from the people. That is from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a 10th from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, 
the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah and regard to the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now it's kind of a complicated passage and there's this, he's a priest and unlike this and in this genealogy, and we can get bogged down into this almost pseudo legal feeling argument. But essentially what, what our author is pointing out is he says, hey, if Abraham, who is the father of our understanding of God's presence, remember their only, their only marker of the presence of God at, up to this point is the temple and the tabernacle and the priesthood. And the temple and the tabernacle and the priesthood kept God intentionally at a distance. The Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies and you couldn't go in there except one time a year, the high priest could go in to offer the atonement. And so this is their model. And so our author is stepping back and saying, in case you limit our new high priest in Jesus Christ to the same limitations that were put on the priests, remember there was a priest before. A priest before who, who existed outside of that system. And he brings all of that up to point to the fact that maybe God is higher than the system. God's authority is higher than the system that you understand. God's authority is bigger than our understanding of his presence. And this passage reminds me of a similar idea that we see in the gospels and in Acts, right? In the gospels, we see these disciples who are following Jesus and they're constantly bickering and they're constantly fighting and they're misunderstanding what Jesus is doing. They're looking for Jesus to set up a political kingdom and Jesus isn't about that. And they're constantly wrestling with that and falling short. And it's easy for us to look at the disciples in the gospels and be like, you idiots, how can you miss this? And we see these same disciples that Jesus is arrested in the garden and they scatter and they lie about their connection and they flee. And then Jesus dies. And even after the resurrection, they're hunkered down. They're hiding in the upper room. They're not sure what's going on. They're fearful, they're afraid. And then we get to Acts four, just a few weeks later. And we read this and they stand up and they, they preach the gospel boldly in the, in the community. And they're sharing about who Jesus is with confidence and boldness. And when they saw, and they is, is the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Something changed. Something took these scared, timid people who thought it was all about political power and changed their perspective. The authority came from beyond them. 
In the same way that our author is pointing to Melchizedek and saying, the authority and power of Melchizedek, the authority and power of the priesthood are not from the system. They're from beyond the system. It comes from Jesus. It comes from God. That's where the authority comes from. And so God's presence brings that authority into our life. Melchizedek is forever because he pointed to a forever God, not because he would live forever. In Hebrew, the name Melchizedek literally means my king is just or my king is righteousness. His name is pointing outside of himself. The authority comes from God and for us specifically in Christ Jesus. He is showing that Melchizedek's authority was from Christ and not from ancestry or title. And so he's trying to get the people who are reading the book of Hebrews outside of their normal thinking that the authority of the priest comes from the system. It comes from the way that it's always been done. And and our author is gonna use um, Psalm 110. And he talks about Psalm 110, which, which, uh, which for the record is a psalm that for years leading up to Christ had been seen as a messianic psalm, a psalm pointing to the coming Messiah. And so he uses it. And, and I think it's interesting that Jesus uses the same psalm when he claims deity on himself, affirming that that psalm was supposed to point to the Messiah. In Matthew 22, verses 44 and 46, 44 through 46, Jesus, in quoting to the Pharisees, says, the Lord said to my Lord, and this is from the Psalm, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So he points out that if David is gonna call his son Lord, there must be a deity to the Messiah. And they can't argue with that. And it trips him up and it traps him. And they suddenly go, there's something going on here that is bigger than we thought it was. Because the authority of God's presence is bigger than we think it is. And this is the recurring theme that we're gonna see here is that God's authority, God's presence is power. But we need to take it in. We need to let God's presence into our lives to experience that power. So where are we not letting God in? Where are we trying to keep God out? It's easy for us sometimes to let God into our church life or to our home life, but there are other areas of our life that God's authority and presence wants to be. And I know that myself, there are times in my life where I've said, God, you can come into my church life and you can come into my home life, but school life, I don't want you there because I'm afraid you're gonna ask me to do things I'm not ready to do. Or you can come into my work life, but um, don't ask me to do anything with that. So where do we need to bring God's authority, God's presence into our life and say, God, I want you to have presence in all of me, not just the pieces that I want, because God, your authority is bigger than anything else. And we need to open our lives fully to God's presence in our, because our next lesson is to remind ourselves that God's presence is for our benefit. It's for our benefit that he is there. I think oftentimes our world and our, our, us ourselves, we look at God's presence, we look at God's authority and we go, God's just some big guy up there ready to, ready to strike us down if we step over the line. And so I don't want him into those parts of my life because like Jonah, I think I can hide them from God, right? We all remember the story of Jonah where God tells him to go one way and he goes, I don't wanna go that way. I'm gonna get on this ship and sail to Tarshish instead. 
as if somehow he can hide from God in the bottom of a ship. But we do the same thing all the time. God, I'm gonna do this thing in secret. I'm not gonna let you into that part of my life because then somehow I think you won't know what I'm doing. But God's presence is for our benefit. God is for us. God wants what is best for us. God wants what is best for us no matter what part of our life we're at. And God is for us. He stands on our side and our passage in Hebrews 7 unpacks that a little bit for us as it moves on, saying that the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. Talking about the the priest being only a legal thing coming out out of the Abrahamic covenant. For the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. God's presence is good. God's presence is for our benefit. Remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about how we're getting an upgrade. We're going from the old system, which required this continual sacrificial system, doing it again and again, day after day, year after year, to a permanent one. We're getting an upgrade. It's better for us. You know, sometimes I think we're afraid of these things because we go, you know, I know what I have. I know what I have and I know what it works and I don't wanna go out there to that new thing, even though they say it's better because I, I don't know. But this is for us. God is for us. And I wanna look at it specifically focusing on verse 26. Look at who he is. He is the perfect candidate. The verse says, such an obvious candidate to meet our needs. Jesus is the ultimate priest. It is for our benefit to upgrade to this better priest. He is so much better than any other priest. And you can substitute any other spiritual leader in there that you want. We don't have the priestly system, but you could, you could look at me as a pastor. You could look at other pastors. You could look at other spiritual leaders and authors and speakers. And how many times have we been disappointed by them where they've said or done something that has completely negated everything they stood for? But Jesus is the ideal candidate and look at how it describes him. Holy, referring to his inner character. He is sinless as in perfect, blameless, free from deception, evil, and guile, as in innocent, not naive, but innocent. Pure, as in unstained by sin, no legal or moral pollution. Think of drinking water, how we want that pure and clean, pure. Set apart from sinners, as in a class of his own. Standing alone, no one else can make the same claim. I heard a comedian talk about the men who walked on the moon having the ability to claim something no one else could that they'd be at a party and somebody would start one-upping them and they could stop everybody by saying, I walked on the moon. 
They were completely in a class by themselves. That's the idea we get that Jesus claims something and can claim something that nobody else can claim. Set apart. Exalted above the heavens. Talking about his deity. Unlike the other priests, this Jesus is lifted up because he is God. The first half of Hebrews focused on his humanity and now we're shifting to his deity, remembering he is God. He is set apart. And then it talks about we have him on an oath and that's kind of a complicated thing, especially because in our day and age, we're not big oath takers. We're not big oath people. But that was the legal binding contract back then. They didn't have you know, contracts written out and they didn't have uh, legal policies and, and they didn't have a terms of use that you'd scroll to the end without reading and click, I agree. They didn't have any of that. They had oaths. And so oaths were the thing. They were the legal jargon of the time. And, and they could not be rescinded. You couldn't go back on it. We see that when, when, um, when Jacob bless, takes, steals Esau's blessing, right? And Isaac makes the blessing over Jacob when he's supposed to do it over Esau. And even though that, was, that blessing was gained through deception, he goes, I can't go back on it. It's binding. I said it, even though there was deception used, I can't go back. We also see in looking at the Old Testament that the greater the object the oath was made on, the greater the oath, okay? The better the oath. Matthew 23, Jesus says to to the Pharisees, woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater? The gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. And I don't wanna unpack all that Jesus is unpacking there, but my point is, as we look at that, we see that they saw this leveling of oaths that if you swear by this, it means one thing, but you can swear by something greater and it means something more. Kind of like how we would see a verbal contract versus a written one. There's these different levels that make it more significant, more powerful. And they were also, these oaths were only as good as the one who made it. And I'm unpacking all this because we're gonna see how Jesus fulfills this oath. They were only as good as the one who made them and oaths like modern legal terms are open to manipulation. Back then, people would seek ways and loopholes and find ways to to get through it in the same way that people today try and manipulate legal contracts. And so we know that, you know, how many times have you heard, you know, you can't trust that person. His word isn't trustworthy. And back then they had the same thing. If somebody came up to you and said, hey, I promised to do this and they never did it, you're like, sure you do. Sure you do. It's only as good as the person who makes it. And that's where Jesus in Matthew 5 says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, he's pointing to the heart, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it is God's throne or by the earth for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And so why am I unpacking all this? Because it sounds like Jesus is against oaths and the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus came by an oath because the point is the oath is only as good as the person who makes it. And in Jesus, we have the ultimate oath. 
the ultimate promise, the ultimate legal contract, the ultimate guarantee. It refers to him in Hebrews as a guarantor. We know it is true because of who he is and he is for us. He is holy, he is blameless, pure, set apart, exalted above the heavens. And what a great benefit we have. God's presence is for us. And so when we sit back and we're afraid and when we're concerned and when we don't trust what is happening, we need to remember that God who is good and perfect and holy is for us and his presence is to our benefit. And so we need to engage, we need to push in. We need to find those places where we can be in God's presence. And I love that Ed in his prayer time brought all three of these things up and I'm gonna bring them up again. But we can pursue God's presence in a worship night tonight. We can pursue God's presence by coming to Saturday night prayer. We can pursue God's presence by coming to Thursday morning prayer. And we can pursue God's presence in other areas outside of that. Again, I know I'm shamelessly plugging the things we're doing, but they're great opportunities to experience that benefit of God's presence. And we need that benefit because it comes from God, a good, holy, perfect, and blameless God. And so where do we need to remind ourselves and others that God is for us? God is for us. And our third lesson this morning from Melchizedek is that God's presence is not limited to our understanding. Sometimes God moves in ways that don't make sense to us. Sometimes God moves and does things that we don't understand. I think of what happened over the last few weeks and months as we've seen stuff come out of the Asbury revival. There are people who saw that and went, God is moving and I'm gonna step in even though I don't understand. But there were equally people stepping back and going, that doesn't look right. And so I'm out, I'm out. But God oftentimes moves in ways that we don't always understand because his presence is not limited to our understanding. Think about the people of Israel when Jesus shows up on Palm Sunday. We're gonna celebrate Palm Sunday here in a couple of weeks. And when Jesus shows up, they're looking for a political king. They're in line with what the disciples thought Jesus was about. They're looking for Jesus to act a certain way. And so they're out celebrating and Jesus is literally riding on a colt, symbolic of everything the Old Testament says that he was not coming in a political overtaking position. He's riding on a colt and they're waving palm branches and calling Hosanna and the same crowd less than a week later will be calling for his death because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. Because God's presence is not limited to our understanding. God moves in ways that don't always make sense to us. And as we jump into chapter eight, we see this in Hebrews. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there has been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord." 
He's unpacking this, our author saying, look, if we didn't need a better one, we wouldn't have needed... We wouldn't have needed Jesus, but we needed a better one because the better one is the copy. And we're gonna unpack that because our author is a little bit more, this idea of the old covenant being a copy of what God intended. But they were so used to the priesthood. It was the only system they knew. I take my sacrifice, I go to the temple, I sacrifice and my sins are atoned for. That's the only system they knew. And now Jesus has opened up this new way that's completely different and it's completely foreign to their understanding and not surprising, some of them are trying to hold on to the old system. But I get this one. This one makes sense to me. Circumcision makes sense to me. Sacrifices and holy festivals, they make sense to me, so I wanna hold on to them. And he's saying, no, we're moving into something new. And they go, but I don't understand because God's presence is not limited to our understanding. It moves in new ways. And it says, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This new system is better because it is built on a better foundation. And it was a common notion at that time, right before Jesus and during Jesus' ministry, it was a common notion that, that the, the rabbis saw the priests and the temple as the perfect system. They had replaced the original with the copy. They said, this is the best we will ever have. And they had taken some verses that they had thought to mean literally it would last forever, meaning it would last how it is now forever. When really what, what he was saying, what God was saying, even back in Deuteronomy and Numbers was saying, the priesthood will last forever, implying through Jesus. And they took it to mean, no, it's gonna last the way I understand it forever. This is how it's going to be. But what the author is pointing to here is the permanence of Christ. And we've talked about this, this idea that, that Jesus' permanent priesthood is both in duration because he doesn't die like the other priests who needed to be replaced by a new one. He lives forever. So therefore his tenure is forever, but also in his effect. His sacrifice is good once and for all. We don't need to keep offering sacrifices. We don't need to have Jesus continually die for us since he did it once for all. It's better. It's permanent in both ways. And so where are we missing God at work because we've seen something moving and it looks different than what we expected? Where are the times in my life where I've looked back and said, God, you know, I remember being, being let go from a job and, and wanting a job and, and, and applying for a, a, a ministry position and being offered on paper the best ministry position. And I remember specifically calling and turning it down because I felt in my heart that God was calling me to something else. And it didn't make any sense. When you have infant twins at home um, and you've lost your job, you don't turn down full-time employment to go find a part-time job. On paper, that makes no sense. But that's where God was moving and it was beyond my understanding. And looking back, I can see how God did that. I can also see times in my life where I haven't done that. Where I've said, God, that doesn't make sense. I'm not going that direction. But God's presence is not limited to our understanding any more than Jesus as the priest is limited to the copy in the priesthood that they understood. We need to look and go, God, where are you moving? And where are you moving in ways that I don't understand, but I need to trust because you are good and you are for us and you are the one who has the authority. And so when your authority and your presence line up, I need to step back sometimes and say, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but I wanna be with you wherever you are, even if it doesn't make sense to me. 
So God's presence is not limited to our understanding. And the last lesson from Melchizedek and from our passage this morning is that when we align with the presence of God, God's presence will bring unity. That is where we find true unity. We find true unity in the person of Jesus Christ and in his presence. We seek God not on our own perceptions, trying to make sense of the world in our own way, but when we are with God, we are unified with him, then we will naturally be unified with each other. That is where we find unity. It's in God's presence. It's not in systems. It's not in patterns. It's not in doing things a certain way. It's in unity with God. And when we are unified with God, then even though we have differences of opinion, we will be unified with each other because that is true unity. It's in the presence of Christ, not in doing things the way we want to do them. Hebrews 8, 10 through 13, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. What a promise, right? Remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So what is our recipe here this morning for unity? He gives it to us. Unity with the Lord, verse 10. This is where we start. We start in unity by finding unity with Christ, by setting our own preferences and, and perspectives down and saying, I wanna pursue God and his presence so fully. I wanna be so unified with him that when God moves, I'm right there with him. We find unity there. And that is where we start. And that is where we always start. Oftentimes we start talking unity and we wanna get other people to move. We start with ourselves. Unity with each other. Unity with Christ should lead to unity with each other. The language here in verse 11 is more broad than just the Christian community. Right? When it talks about you don't, it will be on their heart, you will no longer need to teach your neighbor. That is more broad than just the Christian community. But we need to be an example of unity to our world. We need to set our preferences aside and be an example of that unity that we can, in disagreement, still remain unified with each other. And I think as we look back over the last few years, I think we can say that the church has not done well with that, of prioritizing unity with Christ over the other things. And there's been a lot of name calling inside the American Christian church, especially of what is in and what is out and who is in and who is out instead of us looking to the presence of God and letting that be our unity. And we need to be unified with each other. And we start in humility, knowing that we will make mistakes. And if we err, we must own our own part of it. I heard a therapist once share that if you could magically in a conflict divide up, right? The conflict, if I could put a, you know, I'm having a fight with somebody and, and we can't, but if I could, I'd put, you know, 80% is their fault, right? 90% is their fault. Let's even say 99% of the conflict is their fault. The question is, am I willing to take 100% responsibility for my 1%? Am I willing to take 100% responsibility for my 20%? We need to have that humility to find unity because we stand not as people who are right, but as sinners saved by grace. And that goes back to that unity with Christ. 
I need the presence of God. And so I'm gonna come in humility. And even if somebody else is the primary problem, I'm gonna own 100% of my part and pursue unity with each other. And that leads us ultimately, as the passage ends with the hopeful statement of unity for eternity. That is our perspective. We look to the future. Our unity with Christ should have us hope-filled, looking to the future, knowing that God is going to move for all of eternity. And someday we will have the opportunity to stand in his presence physically and spiritually whole. And that should drive us forward. We have unity with each other, unity with Christ for eternity. And so today we're gonna move into a time of communion and we're gonna take communion together. And I'm gonna ask those that are serving communion to start making their way up. And I want to encourage you. I wanna encourage you to remember this morning as we take communion, how the communion table is supposed to bring us unity. We all come to the communion table the same way needing the body and blood of Jesus Christ to remember that Jesus Christ died for our sins together. We come unified as sinners saved by grace, not as people who have it all figured out. And so I would encourage you this morning to approach the communion table with that level of humility. And so with this in mind, just a reminder that our communion table is open to all believers. If you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to participate. If you are not at a stage in your life where you have done that, or if you just feel this morning you are not in a spot where you can take communion, please let the elements pass. Um, There is no judgment here, but our communion table is open to all believers. And when the elements do come, please hold on to them and we'll take them them together. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Father God, we remember that you are for us. God, as we just read, you died for us. And so Lord, we we celebrate and we remember your death on the cross, remembering that you, God, stand in the gap or that you offer the sacrifice once and for all. We thank you for that in your name, amen. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And as we end communion this morning, I would ask you all to join me as we say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.